glad that they're fine. Great. Um, I'm so glad that we did not get this huge blizzard storm that we were supposed to get. And the forecast, like the foreseeable forecast, is 50s. Like starting, I don't know. We did 62 on what? Sweet. It's coming. We just have to hang tight. The swimming, thank you, Tom. The swimming beach at Breezy Point is now open. If anybody wants to know. Oh, April 1st. Makes sense. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this evening safely. And um, the timing of this week is not lost. Lord, I just pray that you would just help us to truly experience and understand what was going on in your days um, and in your interactions leading up to um, your arrest and your death. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us and um, that we would be able to feel your presence. Um, and Lord, I just pray that in our conversations this evening, you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, okay then. So just a little um, refresher, well, back up a little bit. Jesus is in the temple, and he is teaching, and he is starting to be questioned. His authority is starting to be questioned by the religious leaders. And um, he is not willing to, in the very last verse, um, give them a, like, direct, straightforward answer about who he is under the authority of. And so we're going to move forward with a couple of parables, or three parables, um, and a couple of question, more questions that they are going to ask them. So we'll read through um, the whole passage. We're going to do chapter 21, verse 28, all the way through chapter 22, verse 40. Okay? Ready? What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not. Which of, which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent, another, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches in a miserable death and let out the vineyard to, an, to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on, its stone, on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves, and have, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came, to, came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to, to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax." And they brought, brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day the Sadducees came to him, 
who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were, now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, she died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor will be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as the resurrection, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But then the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, and, he gath and they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great command, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Woo. So I need a drink of water. All right, so we know that Jesus' time is short, and um, I think that oftentimes when we look at this section of Scripture, I know for me, I look at it and I think these are the last days, and these are the people, this is when he gets tricked, he gets, you know, misled, and they arrest him, and then they bring him, and he is ultimately crucified. And so I look at it in a way that, the religious leaders are but the the story like i pay i paid more attention to them but this time it kind of caught me a little bit differently jesus did not waver in all of this testing he's still the same jesus the same teacher that the disciples have been traveling with and through all of this he is still a calm cool and collected teacher. He's patient. He is willing to repeat. He tells stories. He desperately wants people to understand the good news and what he has for them. And so he's patient. He's the same Jesus that we saw at the very beginning. And even though these religious teachers are ruthless and trying to trip him up, he continues to give them opportunities to get it right. All the way up until now, he's still giving them opportunities to figure this out, to figure out who he is. He does want these, these religious leaders to know who he is. He does want them to follow him, and he's giving them every opportunity that he possibly can. 
In these three parables, um, the first three, the, um, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and then the parable of the wedding feast, these parables are addressing the religious leaders directly. Jesus is using them communicate, to communicate something directly to them. And there's some commonalities that we see in all three of these. First, they're about relationship. There's a relationship in each of them, and there's a person in authority, and there's other people um, that are in relationship with them in some way. They also include an invitation of some kind. And then there is also a promise that is not honored. And so he's using these to speak directly to these religious leaders, and he's being pretty direct. So as far as authority, who, it, who are the people in authority, we're going to compare these three um, kind of side by side. In the parable of the two sons, the authority is the father, and then he has his two sons with him. In the parable of the tenants, the landowner is the person in authority, and then the tenants and the servants and his son are part of that relationship as well. And then in the parable of the wedding feast, you have the king and you have the servants and the citizens. And the king obviously is an authority. So then what is the invitation that we see in each of these? In the parable of the two sons, the invitation is go to, to go to work in the vineyard. If I asked my kids a question or said, hey, go out to the backyard and work, why? What do you want me to do? And so it's interesting that he didn't give a lot of information about the work, and they responded in two different ways. But the invitation was to go do the work. I always give my kids invitations <laughs> to work, but they don't necessarily respond positively. And then in the parable of the wedding feast, obviously the invitation is to the wedding feast. The king extends the, the invitation to his people. So then this idea that there is a promise that was not kept in each of these comes to light. The in the parable of the two sons, the second son said that he would go, and he didn't. And then in the parable of the tenants, the tenants refused to give the landowner the fruit that was rightfully his. And in the parable of the wedding feast, the invited guests refused to go. In the parable of the two sons also, Jesus identifies the religious leaders. He's talking directly to them, and they know that. And so he is the subject of these parables. And then in the second and third parable, um, he is as well, but they also are going to communicate the consequences that they face. Parable two and three are also considered allegory. Allegory is when there is a story that is used to communicate like or reveal a hidden meaning behind something. Like sometimes it's political, sometimes it's moral. Um, and so it's a story that has representation. And so there is representation in the parable of the tenants and there is representation in the parable of the uh, wedding feast. And so we'll look at this. In the parable of the tenants, the vineyard looks like Israel. The tenants may be considered the religious leaders, 
the servants, the prophets of the Old Testament. The son would be Jesus. The fruit would represent righteousness. And the stone typically is seen as Jesus as the cornerstone. The parable of the wedding feast is also an allegory, but it's also considered a metaphorical allegory. So he's make, it means he's making a comparison. And in verse 2 of 22, he actually says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So he wants them to draw the comparison. He's telling them to make this comparison. And so for the parable of the wedding feast, the feast is the kingdom of God. The king is God. The son, Jesus. The servants delivering the invitations. The first servants. The prophets of the Old Testament. The first invited guests the Jewish people and their leaders. The second set of servants sent out, the apostles and other disciples. And the second set of guests invited, non-Jews, non-Jewish people or the Gentiles. And so he's using these stories to take the people that he's actually talking about and, and wanting them to draw a conclusion about what he is saying to them. And I want to be really careful about allegory because not, we have to be careful because not all of Jesus' parables are allegory. It's not like a one for, not always a one-for-one one type of comparison. And we have to be careful with the rest of um, Scripture as well. We don't want to try to figure out who every word or thing represents in there. That can be dangerous and inappropriate. And so with caution, I am sharing the representation of in these parables so they go on and they talk about these consequences and the religious leaders they actually verbalize in the parable of the tenants they actually said out loud to him what their consequence was going to be in 21 verse 40 they said when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those tenants? And they said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out, let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. They don't realize that he's talking about them. But they just said they understood the consequence of that, of their action of not responding to the invitation that that landowner gave the tenant in being in a relationship with him and then giving him the fruit that he has, a, has an agreement that they would give him during the har after the harvest. And so Jesus, um, Jesus is telling them, those who reject him will be crushed. There's that, um, the mention of that stone. Some people say that this was an add-on, that maybe it doesn't fit quite well, um, but it's, we oftentimes hear of Jesus as the cornerstone. So the parable of the wedding feast, again, the kingdom, will be given to the people who respond. So if the wedding feast is the kingdom of God and he extends this invitation, 
And they're like, no thanks. I'd rather stay home and binge watch, I don't know, work in my field, do my taxes in my office. Thanks, but no thanks. I think about that for those of us that have had weddings or paid for weddings. When you put out invitations, you know how much each invitation costs, right? Like not the actual invitation, but that invitation represents a, a certain cost, right? So when somebody says they're coming, they RSVP, we're coming, you expect them to come. It's kind of like a promise. <laughs> I will be there. And so the people that did not show up are the leaders and the Jewish people who will not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. So the kingdom will be given to people who will respond to the invitation. If you're not going to respond to what I'm offering you, then I'll give it to somebody who will. It's kind of like um, a few years back, I don't know if this is a proud parent moment. I thought it was. For Easter, my kids are getting older, and I thought, wouldn't a family Easter basket be awesome? No, it is not. Um, I did candy. I did gift cards. I thought this was cute. I did gift cards for us to do things together as a family. I had gift cards in there for each of the kids and their favorite little places they wanted to, like, to go to eat or whatever. And my kids were like, really, Mom? This is it. Yeah, it's so thoughtful. Isn't it great? Sure. And my response is, you have no idea. All of the running around I went to to get all of these things for this family Easter basket. And if you aren't going to appreciate what I have given to you, then fine. I'll give it to somebody who will appreciate it. Anybody ever hear that from their parents? Fine. If you don't appreciate what I have provided for you, I will give it to somebody who will appreciate what I have done and what I have made or what I have offered. <laughs> so this is what is happening here. He's offering this gift, this invitation to his kingdom, and they're like, nah, no thanks. And then we have this guy who shows up at the wedding and he doesn't have the proper attire on. And the idea or the thought is that um, because they went out into the street to gather these people to come to the feast, the king likely would have provided wedding garments. So they would have what they need. And this guy shows up without his wedding garment. And the king is like, why are you here without your wedding garment? And he doesn't answer. He doesn't have an explanation. He doesn't have an excuse. He was offered he was given everything that he needed to show up to that wedding feast and participate like everybody else. But nope, it's good. So the consequence for him will be the darkest judgment of all. It's like, come on, buddy. It was offered to you. 
And then verse 45 tells us, tells us that the religious leaders know that Jesus is referring to them. Mm-hmm. I see what you're doing here. And they were still insistent on arresting him. What is missing here? We talked about this this morning in our conversation. Humility. Humility is missing from this narrative. Humility from the religious leaders. They're unwilling to think that anything that they believe to be true could be off or could be wrong. And so they're standing their ground. Now we, of course, have the luxury of knowing how this all ends. So we can sit back like armchair quarterbacks. I don't even know what that means because I don't understand football. But I heard it seems like it makes sense. But we can sit back and we can project like, come on, why aren't you doing this? You should take this offer. You don't know what's coming. But they aren't. And so then I wonder, do we see these religious leaders for who they are? Like, these people believe with their whole hearts what they are teaching. They don't know anything different. And this righteousness that Jesus is presenting to them is so drastically different. It is the opposite of what they are teaching. And so they're holding their ground. Oh, Debbie. They just talked about one person, that it was just one man. Okay, so if this, are you talking about metaphorically who it would be? Pretty much anybody who doesn't take God's invitation, Jesus' invitation. Well, it's the same death. I mean, separation from God, you know, the judgment. But it's, you know, here's the thing about parables. Sometimes they seem ridiculous because they can, and they're parables, and they don't always make perfect sense, or there's very grandiose type of language in there as well. Is that helpful? Right, I mean, okay, you show up to a wedding, you're not dressed appropriately, um, the host says, why aren't you dressed? Probably don't have an opportunity to go out and say, oh, wait, I forgot, let me go get, you know. However, this is, remember, that does not represent the fact that you miss it, you're done, right? Don't, we don't want to go, we don't need to go there. Right? Does that make sense? It's not like you're asked or you're invited once, and if you don't take it, oh, sorry, you're out. Jesus is asking, he's inviting over and over, and he's still doing it. And so that's what this is representing. Jesus is relentless. He wants these people to get it. He wants these people to recognize him for who he is. 
and be part of the kingdom of heaven. And so I th- we were thinking about this this morning, too, and reflecting ourselves, like, what might we have wrong? You know, aside from, like, the essentials of our Christian faith, what are, are there things that we might not have quite right? Are we humble? Are, do we carry a posture, a willingness to maybe be wrong? These religious leaders did not. But do we carry a posture that we're willing to be wrong and we're willing to engage with people who might say something different than we say? Because we look at these people in the Gospels and we're like, come on, why can't you figure this out? This isn't hard. You see it over and over and over again. And so we really (laughs) thought about that this morning. Are we willing to say, wait a minute, to some of those maybe tightest things that we believe? Wait a minute. I've heard somebody say this a few times, many times. Are we willing to go in and ask a question? Help me understand why I have heard this. Can you help me understand why I hear that? It's that posture of humility, that willingness to learn and figure it out. Are we willing to say, I don't understand? Are we willing to say, help me understand? and engage in those conversations with trusted people. So these parables um, are summaries, basically. In verse 14 of of chapter 22, it says, For many are called, but few are chosen. This can go a lot of ways, and we can spend lots of time in here, but here's the essence of it. This is about personal agency. This is a per- about a person taking responsibility for the choices they choose to make or choose not to make. And the consequences that come with those choices. A person's response to God's invitation to the kingdom of heaven requires some humility sometimes and certainly an open heart. So the religious leaders, they do respond to what Jesus is explaining, but they don't respond in the way that we would like them to, perhaps, or we think they should. They become more deliberate in their effort to trip him up so that they can arrest him and have him legitimately arrested for something. So the Pharisees and the Herodians question Jesus about taxes, So the Herodians would have been a group of Jewish people that were loyal to Herod's family. So they would see no problem with paying taxes to Rome. And so in uh, in chapter 22, this is how this goes down. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him the denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar what the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, God's. By asking for this coin, Jesus is going to point out to them some hypocrisy. Okay? So the fact that the coin that they had has Caesar's face on it, and it is likely um, inscribed and says God and high priest, he is suggesting to them that by mere possession of these coins, it, it would be blasphemous. That they are violating the law and that this could be viewed as idolatry. So that's what he's saying to that's what he is saying to them. So he was very careful and balanced in his answer because he actually affirmed the Pharisees because he said, give to God what is God's. And he affirmed the Herodians because he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar. What do you do with that? If he would have said yes, just yes, pay Caesar, he could have lost following. Like, wait a second, he said this and now he says that? And that's actually what the Pharisees wanted, the, re the religious leaders wanted. They, they didn't like the crowds that were following him. And if he would have said, no, do not pay to Caesar, they would have been able to arrest him for something like treason. And so he was very careful in his response. And so with this answer, God's sovereignty was upheld, and he acknowledged human governments are legitimate in their authority as well. So he did two things with that. And they went away. Like, there was nothing to say about it. But on that same day, they're not done. They're gonna, they're, they've got this plan of attack. The next day, the Sadducees came to him asking about resurrection. So... Sadducees would have been a religious and they um, Jewish religious within the Jewish faith or religion, but they would have only believed the uh, in the authority of the first two books of the Bible, so the books of Mo Moses or the Pentateuch. So they have the first five books. Did I say five before? Or did I say two? I said two. I meant five. Where did two come from? I don't know. The first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, five, means five. So they believed the, in the authority of just those five books. So imagine the holes in their theology. They differed a lot from the Pharisees, and so they would have been in opposition with most theological conversations with the Pharisees. But they both oppose Jesus, and they join together. They're joining forces 
We might not agree, but we do agree that we don't like this guy. So let's do this together. Let's go. And so they're resisting him and trying to trip him up. So they proposed this question that represented some, a law from the Old Testament, brothers marrying the widow. So a woman dies, or a man dies, and then his widow goes to his brother. Pretty sure. <laughs> oh, my husband's brother is real glad that that's not a thing. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> because the Sadducees and only believed in the authority of the books of Moses, they didn't know much about the resurrection because talk about the resurrection didn't come late until later. And this certainly shows that they don't have a full understanding of God's power either. And so Jesus in his answer points out the errors of their theology. Their view of the resurrected body it would be like the bodies we have now. So the Sadducees in their question are probably thinking that these bodies in heaven will be like the bodies that we have now. But he says, no, these will be like the angels. It will be different and there will not be marriage and people will be not given in marriage. So it's different. And God has the power, and he's able to transform bodies that don't need or desire the same things that we do here on earth. And the, and the angels are a model for that. So he gives us a little peek of what heaven might be like. I did a study years ago by Randy Elkhorn on heaven and um, it was amazing, like, what we think we know about heaven, and then maybe um, some of the scriptural references might suggest that we don't actually know as much as we think we do, or maybe there's more that we should know that we are ignoring. And so there's this mystery of what heaven will actually be like, and we don't have all the answers about it, but he gave us a little glimpse here, and he gave them a little glimpse because they would not have believed in heaven, because they don't believe in a life after. He even referred to God and what he said in Exodus about his identity. So he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if he's a living God, then Abraham, Isaac and Jacob have to be resurrected. If he's a God of the living, they have to be resurrected. That's what he's pointing out. Okay, these people, they believe in the authority of Exodus. Let's use a piece of that and say, remember this. This is who God is. He has the power. The Sadducees were misinformed. They were underinformed because their scripture was so limited. And so when you have the when you have this idea of what scripture is and it's just going to be these five books, you're missing a lot. 
or if we decide we only like the New Testament because it feels better, we're missing the history of the significance of what we read about, know, to be true in the New Testament. If we skip books that are hard because they tell us something that we don't necessarily want to hear, I think Lamentations was a great example. I think it's a book that people maybe ignore. Because who wants to read about sadness? We just want to read about happiness and all the things that are good. But when we just take pieces of the things that we want that make us feel good and uh, support the belief system that we have, we are uninformed fully and we're underinformed as well. And so that's what ha that is what is happening here with the Sadducees and that's what, exactly what he is pointing out. Again, it goes back to humility. Are they willing to hear this and say, wait a minute, is it possible that we might have this wrong? Who can we talk to about this? The other thing that came up in our discussion this morning was like, really, none of these religious leaders was like, wait a second, can we just hold, pump the brakes a minute? Like, Jesus might be on to something. Like, we should probably investigate this or look deeper. Did nobody or did somebody, but they were not brave enough to come forward and say, wait, let's pump the brakes here. And so how does that apply for us today? I think about the things that we know to be true, and are we willing to be vocal about it? When Jesus commands us to love our neighbors, are we willing to step out and be vocal about it in different ways? Jesus wanted the Sadducees to get it right. It's not about being right, it's about getting it right, and the time is ticking for them. And then the very last piece is familiar, I think, to many people. They try to trip him up again, and they want him to rank the commandments. And there would be 613 commandments that could be found in the law. So which of these would you rank in what order? Tell us which one you think is most important. And Jesus just gave a straight-up answer. No story. No analogy, no parable. He just said, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Done. These are two commandments both tied in with love, which go back again to relationship. Love and relationship go together. And so we think about the relationships that we have with Jesus, with God, and then those around us. Love is big. 
it's a big deal. It requires humility. It requires an openness. It answers questions like, what are we here for? What does God want from me? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is about relationships and how we interact in, in our relationships, how we respond to people in our relationships. Do we trust people? Are we willing to be humble and ask questions? Do we have relationships with people that are safe, that we can disagree, that we can talk respectfully about some of the things that we don't quite understand or maybe we think we understand? The religious leaders were unwilling to budge. They were unwilling to consider that what they knew to be true could now be wrong. And that came at a, at a huge cost. And this is where we are in Jesus' Jesus' life. And we know during this Holy Week that he is coming to the end. And he's being ushered in. And so one of the things that I um, have really thought about is the timing of this. Like Eric was intentional in his timing for last week and this week. And tomorrow... We have our Monday Thursday service. It's an opportunity for us to come together and reflect on really the relationship that Jesus wants with us and what he actually did for us. This experience tomorrow will be very tactile, tactile, and I think it will be something that you don't want to miss. And so I invite you to that at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. And I invite you to go into your discussion groups. If you need to combine, um, certainly do that. <laughs>